0: Levi Belfield, the serial killer who spent his time preying on women and children and ultimately murdering three of them, has requested permission to get married whilst in prison, where, of course, he's currently serving two whole life sentences for the murders. Now, to give you a measure of this guy, Belfield was the one who snatched and killed the 13-year-old schoolgirl Millie Dowler. Whilst in prison, he's been gloating to fellow cons about how, having snatched Millie, he proceeded to torture and rape her over and over again. Having denied Millie and multiple other women the chance to ever have their wedding dream, the fact that he has the audacity to even request that same dream for himself sickens me. Now, I don't care one jot about his so-called human rights. To me, he showed his regard for human rights the second he did what he did. The fact also, by the way, that there is any woman alive who would even contemplate marrying such a monster is something that I simply cannot comprehend. Belfield's request is currently being reviewed and I for one hope and pray that decency prevails and that his request is denied as quick as it was submitted. Something tells me that I'm not going to be alone in that view. Well, I had to get that off my chest today. Did you see that story? What did you think to it? Anyway, keeping me company until seven o'clock tonight, my panel. We've got consultant and author Alex Dean, writer and national coordinator of debating Matters, Mer Lovett, and Kevin Craig, chief Executive of PLMR. And you know the drill on Jubes and curves, well, don't you? It's not just about us. It's about you at home as well. What's on your mind tonight? Get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Or you can tweet me at michellejubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our YouTube page. You can watch live or the best bits. We've got podcasts. We've got app. We're everywhere. And I tell you what, if you watched the show yesterday, I've, been, I've had these presented to me today. I've not lived the triangle conversation down From yesterday, a lot of people picking on me for that. And of course, other cheese triangles are available. If you missed yesterday's show, by the way, you can catch up, as I said, on YouTube. Uh, Let's get into our first top story then, shall we? When you call 999 needing urgent medical help, how long do you think is reasonable to wait for an ambulance? Well, get ready to wait for an average around one and a half hours. You heard that right, one and a half hours. Slow response times are putting lives at risk, say medical experts, you don't say. So we all know by now, don't we, that there's a problem. Uh, of course, it doesn't just sit with the ambulance service, it's beyond. But how on earth do we tackle this? If you need urgent help, surely, surely you must be able to almost instantly receive that. Kevin?
1: Yes, Michelle, I share the uh, outrage and sorrow of the people who have suffered from these delays, but... The fact is we don't, as a country, uh, spend enough of our money on healthcare. Um, There are gaps of literally billions of pounds in what we invest in terms of our uh, GDP percentage. And, of course, uh, the pandemic has had a huge impact, uh, and I think the NHS is still recovering. I've seen the queues outside Tommy's in London on occasion using A&E over Christmas. Uh, And this is a very, very uh, traumatic uh, story, really worrying for the people involved but you get the country you pay for and we don't spend enough money on healthcare.
0: Alex you see I've got to say whenever I hear someone say of the left the answer I always seem to hear when it comes to the NHS is it's more More money money needed more money more money more money I personally wouldn't give a penny more to the NHS until I'd picked it up investigated what's going on and done some serious root and branch reform am I wrong?
2: Uh, I don't think so and our GDP percentage which I think what Kevin meant has never been higher in what we've spent uh, on our healthcare system than it is today it's less and if than we numbers, k- if we carry on uh, spending as we have done on our healthcare system in the end we'll only spend on healthcare a- and nothing else um, I think anyone who watched uh, Colin's Brazier's show immediately before this one, though, will know one salient fact, which is that demand has spiked in the last year. And that's something that, I, that the health service can't be blamed for and can't have foreseen. There's lots of things, I think, structurally that we could look at and revisit about our NHS. But the fact that it's on the numbers we saw on Colin's show, some 75% of serious incidents up in a single year yeah, 77 means no-one yeah. could have planned for that and no-one could have budgeted for it. No-one hires 75% more drivers or 75% more capacity on the off chance there's going to be that kind of jump in the next year. So on that statistic, it's actually not somebody's fault. Neither the politicians spending on it, although they're a very easy target to beat up, Kevin, nor the people running the NHS, nor the people delivering the service.
1: You, just, just to say specifically, uh, Alex, you said our percentage has never been higher. But we don't spend as much as other countries. And I think there's a lot of merit in in, in lots of what you've said. But I do not believe that we invest enough. And when you've got situations like this, and you're right, the NHS has been under extreme stress, but there should be money available to pile into this situation and stop families waiting for ambulances. Because there have been billions of of pounds wasted during COVID... And that could have done loads of good. Oh, are we well, supposed well, to forget about that? On, that, on that, we agree. Money
3: though, Kevin, Because I think that's the big question for me. So like Michelle says, some of the problems are obvious. People being left in beds for longer, people mm. left on the back of ambulances, the post-pandemic surge, a national shortage in ambulance drivers and, and paramedics as well. Some of that fits in quite nicely with the government's high job, high wage um, uh, economy-led, jobs-led recovery. So some of that fits in quite nicely. Um, some of the difficult conversations are that we need re- root and branch reform, as you say. It's almost like we've got this over-bureaucratic um, moth, which is kind of strained under its, yeah. own, its own kind of weight. And that's the harder argument to have. And really, nobody's having that conversation.
0: Yeah, just to give you some context, by the way, the response time for what people call a Category 2 emergency, so things like a heart attack or strokes, has risen to more than 51 minutes. That's almost three times longer than the 18-minute target. See, Alex, I think we need to have some really difficult conversations, actually, about the NHS, because for a very long time, the NHS has become... It's like a, a religion. Yeah. And if you even dare to, to criticise or to even want to evaluate the NHS, people become furious because they think you're attacking the nurses and the frontline staff, and we need to move on from that. Well, and, they,
2: and they hide behind that, and they suggest that you're not allowed to have this conversation because they claim that you are attacking those people. And actually, that's an argument that's to the detriment of the NHS, because if you want to improve our health system, which, if we're honest, does some things well and some things badly, like basically anything, then you should have an upfront conversation about uh, about it and about how it's funded and about how it's structured. Argument from anecdote's never attractive, but so many people think about the NHS from the hospital they see, the doctor they see, and the, the treatment they receive. I've called an ambulance relatively recently. It came very quickly, and the person I called it for received very good care. Uh, but, you know, one swallow doesn't make a summer. And the point is that the evidence is clear. People are having to wait for a very long time um, for a- ambulances, and that can't be right in, in a normal civilised society. But to Kevin's broader statistical point, which I think is right that we should compare ourselves to other countries, we spend much more than the OECD average on our healthcare system, and in many different and important categories, we get much worse results. Yeah, we get much That's the thing outcomes. we should remember.
0: Yeah, and you would concede, Kevin, surely uh, you're a businessman, mm. so if you had uh, a failing division of your business, you wouldn't just keep saying more money, more money, more money. You'd stop. You go, right, I need to look at this. What is going on? This bucket's got holes in it. I'm not just going to keep chucking more into it just to leak out the side, surely?
1: Well, you're also a businesswoman, Michelle. I'd go back. Before I was looking at the holes in the bucket, you'd go back a level and actually you'd look at uh, was it the right size of bucket you know, in the first place? And it's a level back. And just because the division was failing, I wouldn't pile in and close it down. I'd look at, uh, is it getting the resources it needs to succeed? And I, and I think this is a very constructive debate we're having tonight, but I, I do believe across various parts of our country we are trying to do things on the cheap and we are not talking about the billions of pounds our government has wasted in recent years. That's all.
0: Yeah, it has. I, I do con- uh, conclude that it's wasted a lot of money, but, Mo, I would actually start right at step one and ask what do we want our NHS to be? Because right now... You can have all manner of stuff uh, done. I mean, you know, chance will be a fun thing to get in and get an appointment. But nonetheless, the principle is, you know, boob jobs, nurse jobs, uh, drink treatment, drugs treatment, obesity treatment, lifestyle related uh, choices that make you ill. Pretty much anything goes on the NHS. I would take a step back. Look at Kevin. itching to yeah. tell me off. But I would take a step back and go, hang on a second. Do we actually want this NHS to be all things to all people? And I would say no, we don't. I mean, it has gone a bit woke, Kevin. Come on, uh, you,
3: you know it has diversity no, managers and all the rest no, of it. No. But, you know, coming back to a, a kind of serious point, yes, you can argue that it's been under-invested. Yes, you can say, as Alex has said, nobody could have predicted a, a global pandemic and the strain that would put on it. But I don't want us to keep looking back. I want us I to look at what we want going forward yeah. and have those robust conversations. Because, okay underinvestment might have a serious point, um, but where is that investment to come from, and how does that translate? And you know that thing about hiding behind um, kind of the NHS as a kind of kind of a religious thing. Imagine, you know, the anecdotes from people who work in the yes. NHS—they yes. would prefer a streamlined, more efficient, more hands-on, customer-focused um, delivery service themselves. That's
1: a great point. Uh, again, and Alex is right. A uh, view by anecdote is no good. But only last week, a Scottish NHS physiotherapist, I said, I know, and he said. It's a mess. We need to sort it out. So I, I absolutely don't think the NHS should be beyond examination and reorganisation.
0: But where do you stand on my point, though? Because you was uh, looking at me like I was a bit bonkers. Because yes, I, I, I do. Was. W- well, why? Because I think I'm talking good sense here. What's wrong with it?
1: Well, you often are. But I think I heard you say, "Well, what's all this with the NHS and boob jobs and this and that?" Now I'm no, ex- I'm no expert, but I am not aware that the NHS is piling significant resource into boob jobs for, for purely cosmetic reasons.
0: It's not necessarily about the significant resource it's about to me what is the principle what is the what is the foundation principle of what we want the nhs to achieve because let's face it i don't mean to be rude but there's an awful lot of people that simply can't be bothered to look after their own health now we've just had a pandemic yes. you know and and it did unf- it did covid does often affect uh, the people that have got different issues more than it does your average healthy person yes. But, you know, I don't even think that that pandemic has made enough people step up and say, you know what, I'm going to value my health. I'm going to look after myself a bit better. So if that worked, nothing will. So what I would say is, should we be treating as much lifestyle stuff as we do?
1: Now, that's a fair point. All right. That's a fair point. And I think most listeners and viewers would agree that um, people have to take a bit of responsibility. So bizarrely, I agree with you there. And, you know, um, the number of people dying from cigarettes right every year is not far off what, who the numbers the pandemic killed right?
3: You see I think you've got to be really careful with that. Why? I really Why? do. Because Smoking really winds me up. If you, really if you, if you up. start to see people who smoke, people who drink, people who are overweight, people who are vaping people who are you know hand gliding and all yeah. the rest of it. The point of the NHS was that it was free without fear. Okay, oh, but but Come on we
1: have to help ourselves Alex. Yeah no, fair it, enough make the, the
3: point but uh, let's not morally judge who gets treatment well, and who
0: doesn't. Let's I, just bring Alex back I
2: anyway. don't accept the logic that you should judge the individual and therefore potentially withhold treatment. It's what winds up in the end, with our servicemen coming back from places like Afghanistan and Iraq, and when they're not in a military hospital being told by somebody, well, you basically deserved it, yeah. which you've heard about, we've heard about more than once in our healthcare system. People, people may take on uh, risks, and they're, they're all, there's risk in all manner part of parts uh, in life and society, but in the end we've got a healthcare system that should treat everybody, and that's its founding principle. Absolutely.
0: Kevin, I mean, I might be making this up, and if I am, I apologise, but didn't we We have a conversation a little while ago about people that were unvaccinated. And I thought your view was that if you chosen not to have the vaccination, you shouldn't be getting NHS treatment if you then went on and got COVID. Well,
1: I mean, I thought you might go back there. and uh, Never forget me. Indeed. But I I do think, uh, and this is where I probably disagree with both you and Alex, possibly Mo as well. I do believe that the resources of the state are not limitless. And I believe there is an argument and a discussion to be had about prioritisation. Uh, uh, I, I, I agree with that. To say, just, just around the vaccine, without going because like, we're all keen to move on from it. But I, I do think it was, it was terrible that more pressure was put on the system by people for ideological reasons, not health risk. Which sure. Is, you know, but let,
2: let me say my rebuttal to that know. would be that if we are going to have to discriminate in the true sense of the word about who receives free treatment, it should be on severity of need and not on a moral judgment about individuals and what they've done or where they stand. So on the severity of need, it would mean that the cosmetic treatment that you're talking about doesn't get, um, doesn't get spending what on I it. Said. There shouldn't be a single diversity officer in the NHS. Uh, that There's something that's not to do with the severity of need of the individuals receiving care. But on the other hand, if someone's got cancer, if someone's got a, a leg injury in front of you, it's not down to the hospital or the authority to say, well, how did you get it? And therefore, I'll decide whether I treat you or not.
0: Mm, Lots of um, emails and tweets and stuff coming in about this, by the way. Dave says, Michelle, my daughter is a paramedic and the amount of ridiculous calls that she has to visit is one of the reasons that ambulances are struggling. Uh, Dave reckons that one of the calls that um, his paramedic daughter um, took on 999 is how do you give CPR to a hamster? No, Dave, come on. Someone didn't ring 999 for that, did they? I bet you they did. Do you think I that was, reported, what did I think at the time, wasn't it,
3: that somebody had done that? <laughs> I mean, the fact that there is a post pandemic oh. surge in 990. 99- Nine calls yeah. and the fact that people were resistant to call 999 during the pandemic to protect the NHS does tell you that perhaps there's a little element of people ringing up. More well, but then than if, you, you, if you
0: ring up 999 and you divert resources, I genuinely believe they, sh- they know who you are because they've got your phone yes. number, they more than likely know your address or at least where you are, uh, your name, and all the rest of it. You should be fined, you should be prosecuted for that.
2: Well, you're not going to be able to do that until we get beyond what seems to be less controversial positions. We still don't pay for missed GP appointments, Mm. something that I think would really focus people's minds and uses up a great deal of of public health capacity.
0: Yeah, I agree. And um, I I know you're going to say it's an anecdote, but I got a text message actually last week, whenever it was, saying, just a reminder uh, for your appointment at so-and-so hospital, missing this appointment will cost the NHS approximately £160. Uh, to change it or cancel, ring this number. And I thought, well, I don't even know what this appointment is. I, I have no idea what this appointment is. So I tried to ring the number for love, no money. I could not get through on this number to try and even query what is mm. my appointment. So I missed my appointment mm. because I had no idea what it was even for, and never. Yeah. I don't remember needing whatever it was. So That's, that was one hundred and sixty well, quid. the bomb. most ba-
2: the most basic thing it seems to me we should never be doing as a healthcare system is paying more than you could pay over the counter. Our NHS and the way that it procures stuff pays more very often for basic things, light bulbs, paracetamol, than you could pay if you went down the shops, right? That is that is whatever the processes that arrive at that outcome, it's so clearly wrong that procurement is something that should be a, a fix without needing to spend more. In fact, it should sp- it should save a great deal.
0: Well, Carmen said, uh, their words, not mine. I'm reading uh, directly. Michelle, I am fat, but I work and I pay my taxes like anyone else. In fact, smokers, although I am not one, double pay their tax on cigarettes and pay NHS contributions like anyone else. How dare anyone say that lifestyle choices should not be treated? What do you think to that? i uh, going to take a quick break. When we come back, I've got lots of responses from you guys, so I'll be reading some more of those out. But I want to talk to you as well about Parliament. You will have seen that Boris Johnson is out and about today, uh, got himself over to on Trent. And that got me thinking, we all talk about levelling up, don't we? There's going to be a massive refair project coming up on the House of Parliament. Whilst it's happening, why don't we relocate Parliament up north, I would say, to Hull? Why not? That'll give them a real taste of what life is like outside the Westminster bubble, if indeed they're serious about levelling up. What do you think to that little idea? I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubbury. My panel tonight, Alex Dean, my lovet, and Kevin Craig. Uh, Kevin, a lot of people are not happy with you, young man. Why? In. So now dare he tell us that we can't smoke. If that's what they want to do, they say that they can and they say that they more than well, fund the NHS with their taxes.
1: Uh, my point was, Michelle, you know, and I, you know, I, I'll be honest, you know, 25 years ago, half a lifetime ago, I gave up smoking. and I saw it do a lot of damage to my, my, my dad. And I just get sad uh, when I see people actively increasing their chances of an early death and, it, and it's upsetting and it has consequences for our healthcare system. And I was just remarking that we changed our lives and did lockdowns through the pandemic for, as I last looked, a number of deaths that every year die from fags. And it's upsetting. I'm not trying to tell the viewers and listeners what to do. I'm just saying I'd I'd be happier for you if you didn't.
0: Well, there you go. Um, I've got to say, so many of you are in touch with your stories about uh, ambulances. So many of you have been waiting hours some of you saying that uh, three hours in one case, six hours in another. Andrew said 4.5 hours. It's not good enough, really, is it? Uh, but as we're just trying to work out, what is the answer to that? Right, moving on. The Palace of Westminster needs to be refurbished. And after nearly 900 years, of course, the building is going to need a little bit of TLC. But how do we do that? Let's have a look. The first option that's been kind of banded around is to continue the renovations with the MPs still in situ in Westminster. But that could cost £22 billion. And get this, everyone, doing that could take a whopping 76 years. The second option being considered is to move all parliamentary business to the House of Lords. That would cut the cost to just over £18 billion and would still take over 40 years. The final option is a full relocation of MPs, peers and parliamentary staff from the Palace of Westminster to somewhere else in London. That would cost about £13 and would take 20 years. So given that this is not a really difficult thing to contemplate when you see those figures, those costs and those timeframes, you have to wonder then, don't you, why are we still so obsessed with keeping it in and around London? Why don't we seize this opportunity, ladies and gentlemen? We talk about levelling up. Let's level up then. Let's use this opportunity while you're doing your renovation work to relocate Parliament to the north. I think it's a great idea. Mer, do you?
3: <laughs> well, I think what would be really interesting if they, if they relocated it to the northeast and it to the northwest and see how MPs like traveling between the east yes, and west of the country, because yes. that's an absolute nightmare. But in all, all seriousness, I mean, I think the problem is, you know, when they moved Channel 4 up north and they, they moved The Guardian up north and all the rest of it, what happened is journalists just sat around in bars, talking to people like them, mixing in the same company. Because there are metropolitan elites in stoke on trent you know, there are very poor people in London. So I'm not sure moving in the location, the centre of democracy is um, particularly the answer. I think opportunities for people who live in the country is a much better idea and a better infrastructure, especially east to west.
0: So, in short, you don't really think my idea is that good? No, sorry. <laughs> right. okay, I'll take
2: that. Uh, Alex? Well, I like the historical echoes because until the 1500s, whilst Westminster has always been a centre of power, Parliament wasn't in a permanent place. Parliament was wherever the King was. Um, and, and so Parliament over time met in York and Northampton and Salisbury and places like that. Um, Winchester, you know, there's lots of historical places and, and, and echoes that one could, could go to. And York being a beautiful historic town, that might be where I thought of at first rather than Stoke although I'm sure claims could be made for different uh, venues. The trouble is going to be the first thing that uh, members of Parliament think of, and I mean this with all the greatest respect to people who go into public life wanting to do good, the first instinct is always to think about what does it mean for MPs. And the reason I say that is that the parliamentary report into moving Parliament out or decanting it said the most important thing is trying to ensure that members of Parliament don't have terms which never see Westminster. Mm -hmm. They don't have time within the Palace. I think that's looking down the wrong end of the telescope. And if you're lucky enough to be elected as a member of Parliament in our country, you should go wherever we tell you Parliament is. Mm-hmm. Now, there are lots of reasons, one might think, that if you can, we should try and keep Parliament in Westminster, not least because of all the money and all the effort that's been spent on keeping it secure. Safety's got to be a top priority for our modern parliamentarians. Not only have members of Parliament been killed in recent memory, but mm-hmm. policemen defending the House of Commons have been killed in recent memory. So the extra hardware and the extra procedures that are in place to Protect Westminster mean that I can see why it would be difficult to decant out. What we shouldn't do is look down the lens of. Wouldn't you rather, if you're an MP, be in Westminster because that's the
1: nice traditional experience?
0: Mm. Kevin.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I, I I was tempted initially whether it's Hull, Stoke, anywhere else around the country, and there's a lot of merits to that, but. I don't think it would help levelling up one job. I think it would be symbolic. I think uh, there's good points on security. It looks like it's more expensive to take it out of London actually with when you factor in all the security and stuff and you know levelling up's not working. There's been a load of reports out in the last 24-48 hours and parliament I like the symbol- symbolism of it. You are a champion for Hull and that I region, am. you are. But I, you know, levelling up in
0: Hull by the way, GB News? he's going to be joining us uh, at some point soon. He's in Hull.
1: There, there you are. So, you, you know, it's great the channel's taking uh, things around the country. This won't make this country fairer. It's symbolic. The government is failing on levelling up.
0: See, when we say levelling up, it always makes me pause and ponder. Just very briefly, I'm just going to go across the panel very briefly. What does levelling up mean to you?
1: To me, it means uh, uh, a fairer distribution of our country's resources in terms of money spent on public services and tax applied fairer to individuals, institutions and companies.
0: Mo, what does it mean to
3: you I think it's about um, raising opportunities that everybody has got the same opportunities in terms of um, their economic and, and and social well-being I think it's a bit of a buzz a buzz phrase though I don't yeah, think it I worry really
0: about works that. Alex, Kevin
2: yeah. talks about distribution I don't think that le- measuring up is trying to redecide how we split a pie it's about growing the pie and so I agree more with Mo that it's about offering opportunities to those uh, in areas which historically haven't seen as much opportunity as others rather than uh, ultimately, what the left is going to argue, I think, is suppressing bits of the country and meaning that people uh, should be uh, have be worse off or have fewer opportunities. Mm-hmm. I think it's got to be about taking pe- the whole country with us as we improve our GDP.
1: No, th- that's that's an unfair characterisation of the left and the Labour Party. Now that you've raised it,
3: I think we've got a productivity problem. I'll live. I think left and right don't talk enough about how to create a productive economy. Boris Johnson's mentioned it a little bit today, um, but I, I still think we're not, we're not really sort of seeing that the core of how to make things better for everyone is to be more productive.
0: Well, you tell me at home, what do you think? When you hear levelling up, because we hear about it all the time, this has been going on for years, hasn't it? What does it mean to you? Uh, lots of you guys getting in touch, by the way, about relocating Parliament Joe says, maybe not the north, but definitely out of London. Why not the north, Joe? Uh, We'd save a small fortune, I can tell you now, if you moved up north. Uh, Gordon says, Parliament should definitely remain at Westminster. Carla agrees with me, saying yes, it should be moved to the north. Pete says, what are you talking about? We don't want them up here. Please leave the MPs in <laughs> London. There you go, that tells them. Right, uh, let's pick up a topic that if you watch this show, you'll know that... I don't think I've ever even picked it up before at all. But there's always a first time. Why not? Spain is to become the first Western country to give time off for menstrual leave. Businesses will have to grant up to three days a month for women with medical conditions that cause painful periods. Japan and South Korea already have the same policy. When I said to you guys that I was going to do this story right at the start of the show, I've already received emails from a variety of men that say... This this sounds brilliant. I'm going to self-identify as a woman to get my three days off. Hmm. Uh, Right, who shall I pick up with? You, Alex. Oh, thanks for coming
2: to a man first. That seems... (laughs) A woman sitting to your left. Look, there are are two possibilities that have to be on the table. The first is that period pain can be bad enough that you need time off work. The second is period pain can't be bad enough uh, that you need time off work. What cannot be the case is that period pain... In Spain, is bad enough to you time off work, but the period of pain in the United Kingdom is not. So either this policy is wrong and the Spanish have got it wrong or we've got it wrong in not adopting it. Right. So that's the choice that you face as democratic uh, countries. A- and I think that the discussion that we're going to have next in the United Kingdom, if we're going to seriously debate this and, and think about whether we're going to follow uh, the Spanish example, is what realistically it would do to the workforce and what it would do to an environment in which we're trying to encourage employers to take on a more diverse workforce, which has got to mean more women uh, in employment. Uh, And uh, it seems to me that this is probably going to be a regressive um, policy. After all, we tell people that their biology is not something by which they are judged, and we tell people that their biology is not something that's going to hold them back in the workplace. Well, suddenly, you tell employers that maybe someone in your workforce is going to be out for three days a month. It's going to make it difficult, isn't it?
0: Yes, I'm right. I know that as a woman, uh, I should be championing the old sisterhood and banging the table, go, never mind, three days, give us five. But I have to say a but here, because I worry about stuff like this becoming almost like a chance's charter, Mm. that you'll sit there and go, oh, yeah, look at that sunshine. That's a nice bright day. Oh, I can't come in, Mr. or Mrs. Boss. I've got period pain. And who's even going to challenge that? Which boss is going to go, um, really, have you? Aren't Look, you sure? if you've
3: got severe period pains, as many of us do, you aren't going to worry about whether or not you have to take time off. You're going to have to take time off if it's that bad. And what, but why do you have to tell your boss what your pains to do with? I mean, I, I was thinking about how this is quite a regressive policy. The first ever job interview I had upon leaving school in 1987, they asked me um, if I had a boyfriend, if I was planning on getting married and if I was planning to have kids within the next sort of two years mm. Or whatever. Next, because, how
2: bad your period? Because, yeah, imagine, yeah, imagine yeah, that in a
3: interview yeah, now. But because yeah. the point was, they didn't want to invest in a single woman who might, who hadn't had kids, who might suddenly want time off for maternity leave. So this kind of sexualisation, sex as in you know, not yeah, yeah. gender, but say you know, of us as employees we fought massively to have equal representation in the workplace and to, you know, there were a lot of old-fashioned people at the time who said women couldn't do the job properly, they weren't as robust as men, they would take more time off for kind of... It reinforces things. some very well, old stereotypes. It's actually quite regressive.
2: It reinforces some very old stereotypes about women. It reinforces some of the kind of worst 1950s down the pub, don't give a woman a job kind of attitude because of her biology. Exactly. I, we, it feels to me like the patriarchy in a different way, actually.
3: But, <laughs> but I'm not going to... under. Sorry, I'm just not going underestimate no, no, how bad period wasn't doing that. some people. But if it's bad, you ring your boss. You tell him you're not well. You don't have to tell him specifically. I hate the fact that we have to talk about our bodies mm. all the time.
0: But Kevin, you're a boss. Mm. Uh, honestly, say like if this rule came in in, in the UK, so yeah. now if you're a woman, you've yeah. got this uh, predicament, you can have three days off from a... Are you honestly saying that if you was going to hire a guy or a girl, both of equal talents or whatever... Would this kind of thing potentially put you off hiring a woman?
1: Uh, speaking personally, no. And I'm not being politically correct. I'll tell you why it wouldn't, right? You used a great phrase, a chance's charter. Well, let me tell you, and, and all fellow guests tonight and your good self, it's too late for that, right? The chance's charter is there already. If people want to lie to their bosses, make up illness and, and pretend they're sick till they get, have to get certified, you can already do that, right? And ultimately, that, you know, I That's think true. is a, is a, is a trigger true. and a signal that someone's not happy in the workplace. But um, I bounced this uh, proposal because uh, um, a bit like Alex, you know, I, I see there's is an issue that women should lead the debate on, and I asked uh, a number of young colleagues at work, we're a 60% female workforce out of soon to be 100 people, and they were really happy with it, and they thought it was supportive and modern, and uh, so I've got no problem with it, and it wouldn't put me off hiring women.
0: Right, well, I'm going to apply for a job with you in a minute then, I think it's We couldn't great. afford you,
1: Michelle, we couldn't afford but I'll you.
0: I'll do a special deal. Right, uh, Nigel Farage, I mentioned earlier on, didn't I? He's where I call home. He's in Hull. Good evening, Nigel. Are they looking after you there. How they looking after you there.
4: Michelle, I'm being looked after beautifully. It's a long way from London in all sorts of ways. You know, people here are actually friendly and quite nice, unlike London, where they just walk straight past you. Uh, yet we're in your home city this evening and we're going to be talking. Well, we've been out and about today uh, interviewing a few people about how big they think Partygate is. And while some people are annoyed, almost everyone's agreed. Actually, the cost of living crisis matters far, far more than the hypocrisy that comes from Westminster. So we'll talk about energy. We'll talk about the big energy giants. Should super taxes be put on them to help people's bills? And it's quite an appropriate conversation, given that we're right on the North Sea here. We couldn't possibly come to Hull without talking about fishing. Partly the history, of course, of this port of a long-distance fleet. But the Brexit deal on fishing has not satisfied Hull's fishermen in any way at all. We'll discuss and debate that. And keeping that whole theme going, joining me for my favourite part of the show, which is Talking Pints, of course. I'm going to be joined by local football legend the man that scored the goal that got Hull City into the Premier League, Dean Windass. All of that coming at the top of the hour. Oh,
0: Nigel, I wish that was with you. Uh, give all of my love to all my fellow Hellensians and say a big Hel- hello to uh, Dean hello and me. And also, by the way, my mate Spencer. He's in your audience. He's a big fan of yours. Say hello to Is he? Where are you, Spencer? Oh. <laughs> yes. I'll probably embarrass you now, but anyway, have a good one. Have a good one. Thank seven. you. I'm take a quick break. When I come back, I'll be uh, reading out some of your responses. Lots of you are getting in touch about that last one, periods. Interesting. Um... Would you be offended if I called you work? Uh, apparently, some people celebrate it, calling it a badge of honour. And apparently, even more so, it's dividing us. I mean, I've got to say, caveat here, I've never been called work in all my life. So, not sure how qualified I am to we'll talk about this one. But Kevin, I reckon he's work your worker than a work thing from Workland, aren't you? We'll see, Michelle, won't we? Yes, we shall see. I'll see you as well in just a couple of minutes.
2: Coming up on Dan Wootten Tonight, with man of the match under threat and knee-taking rife is football becoming too woke. One of the beautiful game's best-loved figures, Harry Redknapp, joins me live. With Starmer exposed, is it time for left and right to declare a lockdown amnesty? Spiked Online's Brendan O'Neill lays out that argument. Plus, unfiltered opinion from social media sensation Zuby political firebrand Anne Whittaker, and my superstar panel featuring conservative commentator Dominique Samuels, former Tory London mayoral candidate Sean Bailey, and author and journalist Amy Nikal. That's Dan Whitton tonight, Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.
0: back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Dubry. Lots of conversation coming in about that last uh, topic, about the whole period leave. Uh, Lots of women, I have to say, writing in, saying that they would celebrate this, especially in the case of uh, a condition called endometriosis, which is something I have, actually, and it's not pleasant. wouldn't wish that on anyone. So lots of you, Elizabeth, for example, celebrating that. Karen uh, agreeing, absolutely. Uh, But then you also have the flip side. People like Russell saying... Uh can I have some time off work to shave 2 an hour a day would be good Russell my friend let me tell you this right i often think if men had periods right well the whole world life business all of it would be different so uh, if you, if there was some kind of um you know like the the simulator things where you could experience it just for just for an hour, never mind a day. I'd love you to, and then we'll see how, how much time off people think that they're entitled to. Right, anyway, the world, the word work, kind of this gets banded around all the time, doesn't it? Uh, we're already a nation that is divided. Uh, so when it comes to this term work, some of us view it as a compliment. Others as a deep insult. And then there's others like me that won't care less. Uh, apparently, though, the group of people that are more likely to celebrate being called work Ah, wait for it. Labour voters. Kevin, listen to me saying this. It was in the newspaper, so it's got to be true.
1: Well, of course it must be true, Michelle. But, I mean, I, the word woke, you know, I find it very perplexing, right? Because, you know, what does it actually mean? Uh, and if it, if, it, if it means that you recognise that society changes, attitudes change, if you want a world where... Uh, if you're a black person, you've got the same chances. If your kids are uh, gay or transgender, they've got a chance to be who they are. I'm into that. you know. I, I don't like the extremes of the debate where people want to pull down all our statues and um, I think being progressive and understanding and modern sometimes gets mixed in with people who I think don't seem to love our country, love our history and love what we are as a nation. So if woke is being kind to people in a way that we didn't do so much of in the past as a country, count me in.
0: Alex, yeah. anyone, has anyone ever called you woke?
2: I'm, you'll be surprised to hear no one's ever called me woke.
1: Unbelievable. And I, and
2: I, my, my understanding of what woke is looking at society today is that it's an approach which believes in so-called intersectionalism, where you judge everybody according to where they come from, the accidents of birth and the skin, the gender into which they were born, and then you say, right, you, hit, you fit here on the, on the hierarchy of grievance and you therefore get treated accordingly, not to do with your abilities or your attitudes or uh, your achievements or your views, Diversity of opinion no longer counts. That's what we judge society by. And I find it a very regressive movement. I note from the polling on which this story is based, from Ipsos Mori, I thought it was fascinating. The percentage of people who think it's a positive about a quarter of society remains unchanged uh, over years. The percentage of people, and this is why it's now newsworthy, that think it's not positive has gone up quite significantly. The shift is from people who don't know, that is to say, didn't know the term, didn't know what it meant, to people who now think it's negative. And that shift is what's produced the news story today. And I think that's about right.
3: Mm-hmm. Mo, where do you say Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is people use it in different ways, don't they? There are at least two different um, uh, uses of the word word walk, I mean the historical one that you're you're awake to social and racial injustice, um, the problem with that is that there is an assumption that nobody else is so it's almost like a performative thing um, that you are awake to the injustice in society Mm -hmm. and unless you're prepared to rip down statues unless you're prepared to you know, take the knee and all the rest of it, so it has this performative element but Alex is spot on, this is about a kind of identity politics and a kind of top down I would say, because this is not grassroots Walk people aren't coming up, you know, from a grassroots. There's kind of top-down imposition of the idea... The, the colour of your skin, the genitals you have between your legs and who you prefer to sleep with are the most important thing about you and therefore it obfuscates some real uh, injustices which are to do with material reality, you yeah. know, how much you earn and, and yeah, how yeah. poor you are and all the rest of it. So um, so I wouldn't be very happy to be called woke um, but when you take it as a dictionary definition that you care about social and racial inequality, yeah, well who does I,
2: I think very few people actually think that, that dictionary definition is what it means but let me give you one more aspect of this debate which i think gb news uh, reflects well on Uh, many people thinking that they are woke uh, champion constantly the notion of diversity but their belief their their sense of what diversity means is that people look different and think the same Mm -hmm. and they lose that diversity of opinion that i cherish in society is increasingly embattled but you find on this channel so i I would say gb uh, news is the antithesis of being woke
0: Yeah, see, I would even go a step further, Alex. I think a lot of people that would define themselves as work, that wear it as a badge of celebration, look at me, I'm so nice, I'm so progressive, I'm so this and I'm so that. They're not so that, actually, because they cannot deal with different opinions.
2: I'm so tolerant that I can't tolerate your point of view. Your point of view must be banned in the interest of tolerance and diversity.
0: Which leads me nicely to mm. why do you think that there is um kind of a linkage between this kind of whole wokeness and the labor party often? Do you think that's fair that link or not? No,
1: and I think um I think the topic of wokeness is is talked a, a lot um about on this channel. It's talked it's discussed often. And, um, you know, sometimes there is, uh, I suspect we will disagree quite passionately about the issue of diversity, officers in the NHS. So Alex said earlier, I would tomorrow ban any, any person paid to work on diversity in the NHS. You said that earlier, right? I said the NHS shouldn't have any diversity. Right. Well remembered, Kevin. Full 20 minutes ago. Right. Exactly. Well, it's important, right? So I disagree with that because I think that um, institutions as big as, uh, you know, the, the railway in India or the Chinese army or whatever it is, historically, we have had problems with racism and people getting a fair crack of the whip, but some people react to a job title with diversity in it and get really upset. And I think that's extreme.
0: But that's because what's happened, I think, in society is, of course, people want things like racial equality and whatever. Mm. But that goes without saying. But then you talk about the extremes. It's things have gone to extremes so for example you know some of these diversity managers in the NHS they're busying themselves doing whole new style guards with you can't say breastfeeding you've got to say chest feeding you know training midwives in terms of putting catheters in to pregnant people to uh, and looking at how do you avoid a prostate
2: and that, I mean, that one on chest feeding is ridiculous. absolutely extraordinary yeah. just when we you, you fight for generations for true equality between the sexes and then just when you might think it might be in, in glimpse. Suddenly, there's no such thing as a woman's space anymore. Sounds to me like the patriarchy in action, doesn't it?
3: I, I mean, the this, this thing is, every progressive movement of the past that has fought for equal rights or equal representation yeah. has done it on the basis that we're equal in our humanity, right? Black people did it in the States where, where we deserve exactly the same rights and um, freedoms as white people. Women did it, you know, in, yeah. in that generation. Gay people did it, in, you know, in the 1980s and all the rest of it. All of those historical fights were from people who demanded respect as equal in our humanity. The problem with the intersectionality and the walk ideology that accompanies it is that it's doubling down on this idea of difference, which is where I do have problems with the diversity officers, because I think you are encouraging people to see each other as different rather than the universal ideas that came up with the liberal ideology that we are equal in our humanity.
2: And never think you could have something in common with someone
1: that looks different to you. Yes.
3: That's what
2: encourages exactly. it
1: But I think most people have a common-sense approach to it. I mean, I, what I think is happening is that Labour sometimes unfairly is getting hit with these issues because... People in, in positions of power are worried that the Labour Party is now looking very ready for government. And oh, lo- my
0: God, The <laughs> level of delusion, I have to interject <laughs> Do You here. reckon? You're telling me that you think that the reason people think the Labour Party is, you know, a bit ridiculous is because they're so terrified that they're ready for government. I'll tell you why people think a lot of people in the Labour Party is so ridiculous. Yeah. It's because they sit there unable to say things like, A woman is this, unable to answer a straight question, can a woman have a penis? No, they cannot. The Labour Party turn themselves around in circles, tying themselves up in knot, knots because they daren't say that. That's why people think often the Labour Party are ridiculous, not because they're so terrified they're about to get into government. Kevin, come on.
1: Well, no, I, I think that was all cleared up anyway. There was a misunder There was a lack of clarity that whole ah, no, that no, that chestnut <laughs> misunderstanding. Saying, I, I, I'm with you, Michelle. I think you need to be able to speak, you know, in a common sense, normal way about what is a woman, what is a man, etc. But I, you know, the, the people do like to, to, to hit Labour with issues because um you know inside number 10 the other day it was in 1922 a big group of Tory MPs the Prime Minister uh, went to try and gee them up to tell them that you know the things are going to uh, looking up guys you know please don't sack me please don't sack me blah, blah 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 and what he talked about he was using cultural issues and wokeism as as a as a as a, a, a thing to attack Labour with because actually he's in trouble
0: Oh, dear me, I tell you, ya, like I tell you, I hear it all on, on the GB News, on Jubes & Co, I really do. Uh, I, I, I admire your optimism. I regard it as monumental delusion, but I admire it nonetheless. <laughs> anyway, that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much for your company on the panel and for your company at home. Have yourselves a fantastic evening. Stay in tune for Nigel at home, for me in Hull, and I'll see you tomorrow. Take care.